Welcome to the Stronger Medicine Podcast, the show that seeks to demedicalize and hand back power to the people with regard to our own health and well-being. My name is Julian Donovan, and this is episode number four. So in this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Mike Banner. Dr. Banner is a GP partner and trainer from the south of England, and he's also a regional director for the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. As you're probably aware by now, I'm really quite interested in hearing about people's own personal transformation stories. The reason for this is I feel like they can lend a lot of lessons that we can extrapolate from and serve as a really useful case study from which we can learn things to apply to either our own lives or the people that we're working with. So Dr. Banner went through his own remarkable transformation where he pretty much halved his body weight after coming to some realizations that made him 180 on his own lifestyle at the time. I was really excited to speak to Dr. Banner about his own transformation journey as well as the influence that this had on his own clinical practice. So in this episode, we we do talk quite a bit about his own work, uh, the psychology practice and challenges that are inherent in his transformational journey as well as some of the narratives traps things like that that we often tell ourselves along these sorts of journeys that can sometimes sabotage ourselves we do a deep dive into the complexity of lifestyle behavioral change the fact that it is just not a one-size copy and paste uh, approach so we discuss also the danger of echo chambers in the fitness industry the pros and cons of utilizing a call-out approach with patients and clients. And also we do touch upon the direction and some of the concerns that we both share for lifestyle medicine as a field. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. I really got a lot out of speaking to Dr. Banner. And without any more blabbering on, I give you Dr. Mike Banner. Dr. Mike Banner. Thank you very much for joining today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So you are a GP and you actually have, as far as I can tell, a number of different varied roles. You you host a podcast, you're a director for the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine, and you, you seem to be, you've recently been to the International Fitness um, Seminar, I think it was- Summit. Summit, rather, sorry. Yeah. And so you're involved in a lot of different things. Would it be okay to just give us a bit of a brief outline as to the, the different hats that you wear at the moment? So it's interesting that you asked that and even more interesting that I should probably have an answer prepared for something like that. That's quite a, quite a standard question, but I always I always panic when people ask me that because I suddenly think, what what do I do? Um, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a full-time NHS GP and by full-time um i i work uh, four days a week in general practice which is generally considered to be full-time in general practice um on my fifth day of the week i am a gp training program director which means i uh, am involved in running the gp training for the local scheme so i'm a i'm a gp trainer as well so that's that's part of my role within general practice and then basically um all of the other stuff that i do is kind of just fun hobby related things so to kind of take it a little bit further back I had underwent a bit of a lifestyle change 
myself several years ago over the course of a few years and through doing that developed a big interest in lifestyle change the sustainability of lifestyle change um and the benefits that people get from changing their lifestyle and i developed um what i suppose you could call a passion for it um and part of that involved getting involved with the british society of lifestyle medicine a much bigger part of it just involved uh just being a little bit annoying on social media and talking about it all the time and i used that kind of for my own accountability in doing the lifestyle change but then i also then started trying to use it to um nag other people to to be interested in it i suppose a little bit as well and everything else has sort of come through that really so the podcast um came about through uh being friends with people who i met through things that i did through social media so i went um on a nutrition mentorship weekend um with martin mcdonald several years ago met a chap called dan osman who is a personal trainer in essex um and through mutual friends i also met a lady called emma story gordon and the three of us do a podcast together now called fitness unfiltered which is one of my absolute favorite things to do excellent podcast um thank you very much uh, that's very kind of you and it's been we're on episode sort of 46 now or something mm. and it's just been an absolute um pleasure doing it it's been so much fun to make and i've learned so much from doing it as well but also regional director for the british society of lifestyle medicine what else do i do there's some other bits as well but it's just it's i those are the I feel big, like well yeah. i feel like i've just been talking about myself and that's boring so <laughs> um i kind of i like talking that's it oh that's that's useful for me then um to to have a chat with you in that case so are you a gp partner then i am yeah you're a partner okay so that in itself and you're working four days a week yeah okay that in itself is I'm, I'm for anyone who doesn't know i'm doing um an f2 rotation so like a junior rotation in general practice now and there's not many people i don't know if i can think of anybody who's doing full-time hours in my practice at the moment so that in itself is a lot of work and you're managing to fit in all these other things how it's just struck me now how are you training and how are you just looking after yourself in general yeah that's quite difficult at the moment and it has got a little bit harder recently since i took on the program director thing and i, I do often question whether i have taken on a little bit too much um but that's that's for another counseling session um <laughs> but it, it's a tricky one because i think a lot of it is about habit formation and so something that i i pick up on from that a lot of people work part-time hours in general practice and i've had periods of time when I've had days off in the week um, and periods of time when we've been so busy where I've had to do extra sessions and I've ended up working five days a week in general practice. And funnily enough, I found it almost less stressful the more hours you do because the less time you spend away from the practice, the less time there is for work to build up for you in your absence. Right. And one of the hardest things is getting on top of all of the admin work. Um, and it's much easier to do that if you're doing little bits of it every day because you're in every day than it is to come back after two days to just a load of admin that that, that might need to be done. So I don't know. It swings and roundabouts. Um, I, I'm sort of building in. I think it's about having a routine. And I think when you're motivated, mm. it's very easy to, to do everything that you want to in your routine. And, that, you know, when I was 
very, very religiously training four times a week. I still was working just as hard. Um, but now it is, it's tough to fit it in. If yeah. I'm honest. Okay. And sometimes I don't. And the other thing is you have an omnipresence on social media that seems quite unrivaled. Um, and that's another thing that you managed to fit in somehow. Yeah, well, because it, it seems like you, you, you work maybe one or two days a week and then you do a bit of this, bit of that. But the reality is you're, you're somehow managing to do all of it. Um, I'm very glad that I, that I give out that impression. You do. That's the vibe I get. Minimal working. But the reality <laughs> is of it, and, and I, that this is one of the very interesting things about the perception of social media, is that I don't tend to uh, post about work um, ever because I just think it's a bit it's a bit too dangerous mm. even if you try and put in all of the all of the caveats to making sure that you don't breach confidentiality and all of those sorts of things there are just lots of ways that you can slip up so I have a bit of a rule that I, I try and avoid work-related topics and I, I generally don't really post at work or or pictures of work or anything like that occasionally I might you know in a lunch break or whatever but at the end of the day an insta story is 15 seconds long so you can quite feasibly do a couple in the morning before you go, a couple at lunchtime and a couple in the evening. And that to a lot of people will be, oh, you're on social media all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, because they don't actually see what, what happens in between that. But gotcha. it's not actually true. So the the main reason I wanted to have a discussion with you is because you've done two things you've undertaken a personal transformation which has been very significant and the before and after pictures speak volumes to that at the same time you're a clinician and you're also putting a lot of those things into your own practice um, either through clinical work day-to-day through the bslm so those are two things that i'd like to hopefully get into a bit of discussion about today so i, I suppose starting off with your personal transformation if we if we take a bit of a journey and sort of rewind back to is 10 years sort of far back enough to give that binary perspective as to the before and the after yeah Yeah, so okay so what were things just trying to think how to phrase this what were you doing around that time and what kind of physical shape and just all the bits and pieces that are so different now how how was that back then if you see what very, i mean very 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 different okay. um, in every way really and um i just didn't do very much in the sense of activity i i had grown up um very very inactive my priorities had always been academia and becoming a doctor and all of those sorts of things and the things that i have always been interested in terms of hobbies was stuff like music and uh, film and sometimes reading from time to time and food socializing basically so I had a very very active social life which always revolved around eating or drinking I was never a big drinker but I was I, I was always out for dinners like that would be what I would do and if I wasn't out for dinners I would rarely cook for myself I would be getting either takeaways or ready meals. Um, I had no formal exercise in my life whatsoever. And the thing that had helped me up until about that point was when I was at university in London, I walked everywhere. When I was um, a junior doctor 
I was up and down the stairs running around the hospital. As was you know, the walking you know, everywhere, was that a decided thing on your part or was oh, that no, just... Oh, no, no. Okay. It was cheaper than getting the train. Okay, just pragmatic, um, yeah. It, yeah, it was cheaper than getting the train and, and the location of our halls of residence was about a 30-minute walk from the hospital where we were training. But if you tr- if you wanted to get the train... It was about a 10 or 15 minute walk to the train station and then a walk the other end anyway. And you had to pay for the train ticket. So mm-hmm. it was kind of it was a bit of a no brainer to just it was quicker to walk most of the time. Um, and so, yeah, so that had kind of saved me, I suppose, in a way. And then when it came to becoming a GP, I was firmly sat behind a desk all day driving to and from work because I needed to have my car with me for home visits. Um, So it just everything kind of changed. And I'd always been overweight, but I had never been overweight to an extent that had particularly bothered me, probably until around that sort of time. And I think also earning money made it worse as well, because it meant I could afford to eat out more um, and I could afford to order more courses when I ate out as well. So um, I just kind of got myself into a situation where I had, I was very happy um, and had an excellent life, but there was this thing in the background that, you know, I, and I I don't always like to, to relate it to size, but that's probably one of the most obviously measurable things that we have at our disposal. And I noticed that I was, you know, my trouser size was just getting bigger and bigger. And I was, I was getting work trousers that, that got at, at one point, um, I had to buy 40 inch waist work trousers. Um, and what's your height s- just out of interest about officially, <laughs> um, about five, nine. Okay. So they maybe have- just a little bit less than that, if we're being totally honest. <laughs> um, but I would, I kind of got to the point where that was happening and I thought this is, this isn't, this isn't great because, you know, I started probably at about 30, 32 when I was, you know, in my teens, then went up to 34, then 36, you know, it was kind of gradually just going in that direction. And I thought there has been no point during that time where it's gone in the other direction. This is just, this is, this is continuing to move and it's continuing to move in the wrong direction. And at what point is it going to stop? Am I going to end up being one of those people who can't leave their house because they're so overweight? And, um, I know that's a, a kind of extreme way of looking at it, but I just kind of just saw this trend happening and and I thought I need I need to physically change something to do something about this because if I keep thinking, oh, one day I'll get it sorted, one day it's going to be too late. So that was it really. Okay. And maybe maybe this speaks to the, the sort of disease-centered model that we have in the medical education system, but... I imagine some people might be listening and thinking when you're going through medical education, this sort of thing is on should be on the forefront of our mind. And it's, it was spoken about in lectures and by other doctors every day, you know, health and um, lifestyle choices and things. But um, the fact that things are continued towards the degree that it did might speak a bit towards the actual education that we've both received. And I guess we can get onto that a bit later with the work that you're doing with the BSLM and moving from there I know that you've I know that you have spoken about this transformation with a lot of different people at different seminars and things so I know that it's a topic that you have revisited quite a lot and you have been asked the question about 
the sort of catalysts for for that transformation the way you're describing it there seems like it was a gradual realization a gradual shift but with that many years on that trajectory that you almost had to do a 180 at some point to go the other way so was was there anything or any factors that sort of played a role in that that you can think of yeah like i think it was definitely a perfect storm of things um and i think life is life has this interesting way of making you look back on past things have hap- that have happened and almost romanticize them and you end up exaggerating you know when you read people's books about the story of their life and you think oh, it just didn't, that didn't really happen that that wasn't it was it like it wasn't that magical um and i think i've almost told myself those those magical stories about it but it was a bit of a perfect storm of a few different things so one of the things that i've spoken about previously was that at the time around that sort of time my um a friend of mine had a heart attack and he was a friend of mine who was 35 so he was a, he was a bit older than me at the time um but he was someone who to me was very fit very healthy um in quite good shape um and ended up having a heart attack and that kind of shook me a little bit from the perspective of you know if if he's going to be having heart attacks what the hell is going to happen to me in a few years time so there was that i think from a medical school perspective and a medical education perspective i think we're very good at separating ourselves from our patients um and you notice that by how how um you know, doctors are often smokers, heavy drinkers and all that kind of stuff as well. And often it's just a very se- separate thing. But um, also one thing that that happened at that time was was me getting a bit addicted to Twitter. Um, and on Twitter, I <laughs> it's such a it's such a weird story. But I I remember a um, a plumber from Wigan following me on Twitter and messaging his mate and saying oi mate follow this guy he's quite funny about me i know <laughs> i don't mean to brag but yeah sometimes people <laughs> think i'm funny um and I, I i clicked on the profile of this guy that he was recommending me to and, and it was um a chap called ben who his picture was um him with his top off holding a pair of dumbbells you know a professional sort of fitness photo and I just thought, ah, oh, who the hell is this? This guy is definitely the most awful person. Um, and it, it was, it was definitely like my, you know, my mentality was definitely there at the same time at that time. Sorry, and uh, and he was very polite to me and said and said hello. And I was like, yeah, yeah hi, Ugh. you know, like in my, you know, just rolling my eyes at him in, in my head. And I saw on his page that it auto posted his my fitness pal diary. Oh yeah. yeah. And it said it had that auto thing going, check out what I ate today. And I was like, oh, this should be interesting. And I was like, I bet this guy lives on chicken breasts and lettuce. Um and I opened up his my fitness pal diary and it said that for breakfast he'd had oats or cereal or something. And then for lunch he'd had a subway. And then for dinner, he'd had, uh, I think it was like shepherd's pie and potatoes and vegetables. And I was like, what? You can't look like that and eat normal food. That's ridiculous. And and I asked him about it. And I said, well, what's, uh, you know, what's all this then? Um, and he was really, really nice about it. And then we ended up having a long chat about nutrition and about how, you know, a lot of people overcomplicate things like fat loss. Uh, and if it was something that I wanted 
help with he was more than happy to to give me a hand in you know helping me sort of decide what to do and gave me advice um on what to do told me about calorie counting and you know to cut a long story short ended up he he ended up being i suppose my accountability as did the rest of twitter because i was then kind of documenting this journey and it would be a situation where i would go like oh um had a really long day at work so i don't think i'm going to bother going to the gym today and then all of these like fitness people would reply to this tweet and go no dude go to the gym you can do it you've got this <laughs> that's and incredible I, like, I know and i was like oh now i have to go to the gym this is awful i can't admit to these people that i'm that i'm not good like that i'm just not going to bother a rod for your own back yeah and it was kind of you know in some ways that you know that use of social media was a really a really positive one at that time and it kind of gave me that, you know, I had to be accountable. I, you know, I said I was doing this. I said, I am going to do this. Um, and I had to back it up with with action. Um, and it was great. And it just, it sort of snowballed from there, really. And and it wasn't just like this linear, I didn't just drop a load of weight. I did lose quite a significant amount of weight in a few months. And then I was like, oh, okay, brilliant. Uh, cool. Just in terms That's- of the numbers, what... I know you said before you didn't weigh yourself sort of at the beginning, but as yeah. as a ballpark, because this is inherently an audio media, just to give people a bit of a picture as to how much weight you'd lost and the change. Have you got any? So, I yeah. So I, the first time I weighed myself was was um, I was ninety seven kilos, I think something like that, um, and I estimate that I probably lost maybe five or six kilos by that point um, from my heaviest. So. I was I was over 100 kilos I suspect um by that summer um I think I'd lost I'd lost something like 15 kilos I think I got down to about 82 kilos ish and then I was like cool done brilliant I look great um everyone keeps telling me I look great um and I'm fine with that um and then I then ended up in this sort of odd like limbo um and it's really interesting, like when you lose a significant amount of weight and you look different to people, people, it's quite difficult, I think, for people to be objective about it. Like I remember, you know, one of the biggest champions of me losing weight was my mum. Like she was very, very wanting me to lose weight. Um, but then when I did, she was like, okay, enough now. That's, that's, you've done enough now. Yeah, you you obviously don't want to lose any more, do you? And I was like, well. a skeleton. I could. And she was like, no, 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 that's enough. Um, and it's interesting because I think when when you start to look different, you become almost unfamiliar to people and people quite understandably don't really like it. And it's not that they don't, I think, well, I don't know what it is, but my theory about it is that when people who love you see you looking different, they worry that it's for for bad reasons. You you know, you look less familiar to them. Um they have always loved you regardless of what you looked like. So to them, you didn't need to change in the first place. So I think sometimes people can be quite resistant to it. But then also they just worry about you, I think, obsessing about something that they don't think that you need to obsess about. Um, and I think if you, you know, you you can take a person who is naturally lean and who has had a six pack all their life and they look normal. But if you take somebody who is really, really overweight and they lose weight to the point where they are that size people are like oh they look so skinny and you would never think that about about the about that other person because you haven't seen 
what their face looked like. I, I always said, oh, yeah, I can't wear such and such glasses or such and such clothes because I have a naturally round face. It turns out I don't. I just thought I did because I was very overweight. But I just I just thought that was the shape of my face. That was my features. That's what I looked like. So then to see to see yourself looking different and for other people to see you look different, I think people can often yeah. see it as a bit of a negative. Yeah. So with yeah, one of the things that's probably worth emphasizing about that journey is that it took, correct me if I'm wrong, six years to get to that number that you said there, 80-odd kilos. No, um, no, 82 was actually eight, six months. Six months? So, I lo- yeah, I lost a bunch of weight in about six months. Right. My, so- my final ending weight was actually a, just under 68 kilos. Okay, that is pretty substantial. Yeah, yeah, that is outrageous. So about 35 kilos in total. And did you feel any sense of... Um, Sort of what now? Any anticlimax? Because oh, massively. Did you? Massively. And what? Did yeah, you, how because... did you reorient yourself then from there? Well, I mean, I I suppose I suppose what was interesting about it was that it was kind of a box that I wanted to tick, but I never expected it to actually tick any boxes. If that makes sense, I it was I had kind of got to a I by the end when I sort of got to the end I had my end point, but. I never really had an end point in mind, like as in I just wanted to keep progressing and keep being healthy and getting fitter and getting stronger. Um, And actually, by the time I was, you know, well before I was that lean, I wasn't so bothered about being super lean. I just wanted to it was kind of it was part of what I'd set out to do. I wanted I wanted to see visible. I just had this thing in my mind that I wanted to see that I had abs that existed and it was i'd sort of said it and it but but actually when it happened it didn't it definitely didn't set my world on fire it didn't make me go oh this is that's this interesting is really exciting now yeah um and you know it, I, I think chasing leanness i don't think is a particularly positive goal and that is something that i realized quite early on because and I think that's because I was happy at every stage of my journey. I was happy before I started. I was happy when I lost 15 kilos. I was happy when I was milling about that level for a couple of years. Um, and I was happy when I was making more progress. Um, the only time I wasn't really happy with myself was when I wasn't taking care of myself. And so so to me, it was a lot more about taking care of myself, being healthy, eating well, training than it was about external yeah Yeah. and and actually it's only really saying that out loud now that I really realized that it was the case and I'm lucky that it was the case and I think I often kind of trick myself into thinking both sides of that like I sometimes I think I sometimes I think the appearance stuff was very very important to me and I tricked myself into thinking that it wasn't and sometimes I think it wasn't actually that important to me and I tricked myself into thinking that it was but I think what's really difficult is that often the appearance stuff is one of the only ways that, that we have to measure things it's, it, when it comes to progress. And that can be a shame because it can it can get you a bit obsessive, I think, sometimes. And that can be that can be problematic for sure. Yeah, that that's something I'd like to get onto actually in a bit. But the before that, with this drastic outward change, did was there any aspects that were obviously transformed inwardly? 
um, as a person? Did you did you change in any way as a result of this journey that you went on? Yeah, I became a bit annoyingly positive, which um, so I, I'd. <laughs> I, I I hate it when people talk about themselves in like sort of in the third person and 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 what they were like and what kind of person they are because I think often we don't really have that much insight into what type yeah, of person. Yeah, I understand. But yeah, all of my humour was always traditionally based around disdain and negativity and whinging, and it hasn't changed massively. But actually, I'm I often I often try and. I suppose pervade a bit more of a sense of positivity and of motivation. And I think that, I don't know, it's, it's a really tricky one. I still find negativity really, really entertaining, which can, can, can be quite, um, quite negative sometimes, but, but I, like, I've been really lucky because I've had, I've had some people who have invested a lot of time in, in helping me on this journey. And a lot of them have taught me a lot of things. And, um, one of them, like, so a guy called Emil, Project Goliath on Instagram, yes. I think you probably know him. Yes. Um, he frequently called me out on negative self-talk. And negative self-talk was probably one of my biggest difficulties. So I always thought it was a very positive quality to be self-deprecating, to be non-threatening, to always kind of constantly play down your skills um agreeableness and i would and, yeah. yeah and I, I i would constantly refer to myself as being rubbish at this or rubbish at that or um you know and i i would probably be quite negative about you know my weight my appearance and those sorts of things and he relentlessly called me out on that to the point you know when it when it started i was like it's just a joke dude like you know what what what's wrong with that like i'm i'm being humorous it's cool and he would say, no, but the more you tell yourself these things, you will start to believe them, whether you like it or not. Um, and actually, that's something that I have come to realize is very, very true. And um, the more negative you are about yourself, the more negative you, beliefs you will instill in other people about you as well, I think, as well. Um, and so that's something that that was quite tricky to navigate for me, especially that it was almost part of my identity, like that I was quite negative so it would be weird when I you know for me to put a Facebook status or something or a social media post about how excited I was that you know I just got better at deadlifting or something like that like it was super creepy and some of my friends would be like would be a bit weird about it as well and a bit like okay all right if you want to pat yourself on the back about it that's cool okay yeah no I do I do want to pat myself on the back about it because actually I think it's really amazing and I'm really pleased with myself. Sorry. So it sounds like you, you kind of surrounded yourself with, well, like Emil and these other guys on Twitter and all the people who were there for you calling you out and they provided this counter argument to yourself and then perhaps what friends and maybe family, as I know, were expecting you to be like. Yeah. And, it, but, and, and I have to give also credit where credit's due. I have a, a a number of very close real life friends as well it's true I have friends. um but a number of very close real life friends who were intensely supportive of this whole thing um and I was so lucky in that sense because I think a lot of people don't and I think particularly in a career like medicine I think we are very used to self-deprecation um but we're also quite used to um 
this sort of slight pack mentality and I, we're, we're very accustomed to taking the mick out of one another and to being quite negative about one another um and i think that can be quite difficult to navigate we also don't like it when people big themselves up i think and that's that's also a british thing as well as a medical thing i think um so that's where i think social media often allows you to cultivate a slightly different network um but i wasn't completely you know cultivating a different network i was just kind of adding to my to my network i already had i suppose and family too oh my god i should also say that sorry because because like again my family were super super supportive and this is this is another thing like so many people don't have that and i think that's one of the biggest barriers to lifestyle change like if you if you have a family who um who who aren't on board with what you're doing it can be hugely different even just from a logistical point of view not just from a you know from a psychological point of view but even from actually doing the stuff that that gets it done anyway mm. sorry I no no that makes total sense if you've got just friction is additive and more resistance i guess if it's hard enough to begin something and maintain it all these other things do add up but so getting back to you you're practicing as a gp you're going through this personal transformation and i'm interested now to know how did this i guess i'll keep it open first how did this impact upon your work as a gp with with patients as an open question to begin with um i suppose it gave me more of an interest in it it would you know like my my ears would prick up if somebody expressed an interest in in um wanting to change their lifestyle um it gave me it gave me more of an interest in talking about it it made me run a lot later in a lot of clinics when i would get down a rabbit hole of discussing it but something that I've spoken about previously as well that that was a bit of a surprise to me is that sometimes I found that people would almost find it harder to relate to me when I would talk about those things. Like when I would tell people, you know, when I was really overweight and I would tell people, um, you know, or I'd, I'd approach people about things like weight loss, it was a very easy conversation because I think they could very much see that I was struggling with the same sorts of things that they might be struggling with. And it didn't seem or feel judgmental or condescending in any way because it was, it was a journey that I was also part of. Um, but when I would see people who might not have known that I'd been through that, you know, you'd almost start bringing it up and you just see the eyes glaze over because there's oh, right, another one of you trying to tell, tell me to lose weight. And not necessarily realise that that I have an insight into how much of a challenge that actually is, um, and I think I had always thought it would, you know, it would make it much easier. But in some senses, it it made it harder to talk about. But um, yeah, I mean, it didn't it didn't have a huge immediate impact. I think one of the ways in which I wish it hadn't impacted me is I probably got a little bit um, maybe preachy about it um in hindsight never intentionally never consciously um but probably thinking back to you know when i tried certain things that that worked and i had had quite successful short term results i didn't perhaps necessarily appreciate the longer term challenges involved in that or the fact that you know causation does not equal correlation um which is something that we also see a lot of when when we see you know people giving advice on forms of diets and things like that yeah okay so with the way you were approaching patients 
when they came in, would you sort of raise things? I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to just only focus on, for example, weight, but I guess it is, as you mentioned, quite a good proxy for just how somebody's health is in general and the lifestyle that they're living potentially. So with regards potentially to potentially and potentially not. Well, exactly. Say. That's yeah, why I added yes. that in. And, <laughs> and that is a question I'd like to come on to in a bit of that's all right. But, but when you were seeing your patients and you maybe noticed um, that, you know, weight might be an issue or whatever it was, would this be something that you would try to inject into conversation whilst they're in for something else? Or uh, because it's something that we try to do in general practice, but it's often very rushed and a bit incomplete and and maybe a bit lackluster. But did you have any different approach to it, to, to raising these conversations and maybe trying to enact different strategies and um, cooperative like methods with these patients of yours? Um, I mean, I think, I think that one of the things that I learned through my own journey is about the cycle of change. And if you are not in a position where you actively want to make changes to your lifestyle, then often bringing stuff up isn't going to have a huge impact, but it might. So while I think it is, you know, it's important to to, to bring it up um, if you think it needs bringing up, I think that there are certain um certain things that you have to establish first and it you know it has to you have to you have to be in a situation where somebody trusts you enough to talk about it you have to be in a situation where you approach it in a very sensitive way where you don't overdo it where you don't kind of ram it down people's throats um and you have to do it in a way that isn't that doesn't kind of shame people or stigmatize them and i think that can be very 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 difficult because i think that um a lot of the ways that we are taught to handle um, negative behaviours in society is to um, really promote the negative nature of them and to, you know, to scare people into changing and all of that sort of stuff. And I don't think that that's something that is necessarily inherent in places like medical school, but it's certainly something that I think we've all seen our seniors do kind of coming through the ranks and in and, and, you know saying well we need to we need to tell people that they're if they don't do this you know we need to firmly make them aware that this is going to happen um and i don't really think that that stuff works and we have a lot of evidence that tells us that that stuff doesn't really work um so i think it's it's it is hugely important how you approach it and i think you can get really frustrated if you if you want people to change because you know that by changing they will make improvements to their life then you can be a bit of a I'm trying to think of a non-expletive <laughs> way of, you can no, be you... a bit of a you can be a bit of a prat about it basically yeah and I think you can you can be harsher on people than I think you should be because you're frustrated because you just you want to get through to them and I think you see it with a lot of families that of people who have addiction problems and things like that when people don't really understand the fundamental issues behind why somebody is engaging in an activity that you don't think is good for them is very difficult not to just get frustrated and ha and speak emotionally rather than speaking logically. And I think that the interesting thing when it comes to lifestyle change is that the reasons for people um, making or having a lifestyle that isn't conducive to health um, are so complex and so multifactorial that it's actually very difficult to go, oh, just do this, you know. Um, and that's why we end up in this situation where we have people recommending very rigid, massive changing 
things like you know oh just just do this because it's easy to say it in a sentence but it's not actually easy to to act on it so just do low carb just do paleo just do calorie deficit you know actually what is really needed is to to sit down with somebody and 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 talk about why they're in the position that they're in you know and it is so different to everybody and for me it was laziness i was a lazy person who really liked eating and didn't like exercising that literally was it um i was busy so yeah there were some reasons why it was difficult for me to incorporate it into my lifestyle but what i have to remember is that then then i had the means to do things like hire a personal trainer and you know do my shopping in mns where i could buy calorie controlled ready meals and things like that um whereas other people who were who might be in a similar position to me from in terms of health and appearance and all of those sorts of things might not have the means or the access um to those sorts of things and there's huge like socioeconomic variables there's family factors there's social factors um there's shift work there's um having young kids there's other responsibilities there's you know caring for for sick relatives and all of those sorts of things that that have that that have such impact on people's lives and lifestyles that can't be resolved in a in a sentence yeah so i think you've actually answered the hot potato question that i was going to throw out to get things like this talked about which was um things on either instagram or uh in the fitness industry in general can be often oversimplified i feel and we one simplification is calories in calories out law of thermodynamics will result in either weight loss weight gain and that's something that generally we accept but then it it begs the question why why is 40 percent of the the globe overweight or obese and everything that you've just spoken about there essentially shines a light on a lot of these different factors which are just so complicated and layered on top of each other and interlaced yeah. um and it is you know environmental factors are huge in that and, and we there is no denying that we live in a hugely obesogenic environment um and so in this sort of situation unless you are actively engaged and trying hard not to be overweight or you have your habits and your lifestyle set up to such a degree that that comes naturally to you it's very very difficult and you know i think it's i think it is it's about time that we realize that it isn't just you know if you don't want it bad enough it's not going to happen well that's true but how bad should you have to want to be healthy to be healthy you know it should be something that is that comes fairly naturally to people and so there's all those factors there's also education you know i have seen many patients who have come in to say i have been trying to lose weight i have been suffering to lose weight for months and i haven't lost anything then why are they suffering because they're doing the things that the advertising industry tells them they need to do to lose weight they're doing the things that the supermarkets tell them they need to do to lose weight um and invariably those things are miserable and ineffective you know i've tried to lose weight on rivita before and that's a it's a <laughs> bad sounds life awful yeah and Riv- exactly and rivita you know my mom loves these... rivita but yeah I, i'm on board with you there but there are all these there are all these really high calorie bad tasting diet foods that you know you can i remember a time like where i ate salad every day for lunch and i was like man i hate salad 
why would give to just eat a sandwich? Just like, do this and, for the next 50 years and see how it goes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and the thing was that I didn't realize that you could eat a sandwich and still lose weight. So I was thinking, oh, well, I ate a sandwich today, so I've, I've ruined my diet now. When in reality, my salad that had olive oil and, um, and avocado and nuts and whatever in it was probably much higher calorie than the sandwich, but would have made me less miserable. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, to your point, um, it was something that resonated with me that you mentioned was the fact that when you were going through your own change, you had the means and the education, for example, to pop to M and S and buy certain foods, um, which maybe might be out of economic reach of other people. Um, you had resources available, essentially. Uh, the really frustrating thing about about lifestyle is that I mean the WHO have already said sort of seventy percent of global deaths are attributable to to lifestyle factors. This is just a massive amount, and it seems to disproportionately affect the people who are in you know more socioeconomically deprived areas with low education. Just the people who have the least. And one thing that I think you touched upon in your podcast about the IFS was it was very refreshing um, to hear that people were talking about the echo chamber effect within the fitness industry where, and I'm acutely aware that I might be even doing it with this podcast where we're essentially talking about these things to people who need to hear it the least. And the people who need to hear this and be supported through these things the most I mean, I suppose my question is, how do we, how do we go about improving that situation? Do you have any ideas? That's a very good question. Um, I mean, I think the thing is that the more, the more that we make it just a bit less extreme, I think, um, you know, the more, and, and I think it's happening. I think, I think even within fitness, you know, if you, I, I suppose a few years ago, if you looked on fitness Instagram and fitness Twitter, it was just a load of, of like impossibly lean, well-sculpted photo shoots. Um, and it was all very, very visual. Um, no, everything was, was hyper filtered. There wasn't very much like reality. And I think what's been really interesting for the change in that has been stuff like Instagram stories where there's this kind of more throwaway aspect of it like so people it's not going to stay there forever so people don't feel like they need to be so like it needs to be so um calculated i suppose um and i think people are just i think people are more honest but i think people are more accepting as well i think a lot of people have started to talk more about you know the psychological impact of of things like physique competitions and stuff like that and how it's not all just that's not what people look like all year round um, and that's you know it has its own its own issues as well people have, have, have been a lot more honest about things like disordered eating um, and I, I think that it just sort of feels a little bit more real I suppose and then you've got things like Nike and, and having plus size models and stuff like that and even like little tiny things like that 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 are just encouraging everybody to be more active and to eat better rather than saying you know, you don't, you can't sit with us unless you already have a six pack, you know, and the, the idea is absolutely ludicrous, isn't it? That that's, that the fitness industry has felt like quite an exclusive place. 
where you know gyms feel very exclusive but you know and I don't know if it's just more the circles I tend to associate in but you know I see people who run gyms and the the biggest focus that they have is trying to make people feel welcome to come to the gym if they've never been to the gym before and it's a no-brainer like everybody benefits from that but it's something that people don't seem to have had a huge emphasis on until quite recently Um, and you've got really big people in the fitness industry making big impacts and being very controversial by going very much against what the fitness industry is about so you've got quite a lot of almost anti-fitness industry fitness people um and i think it's important to open up that dialogue because you know we talk about things like toxic diet culture and all of that sort of stuff and and it it does exist and i think it's important that um that we counteract those sorts of conversations with sensible evidence-based information that everybody can benefit from and i think we're always going to be a bit hamstrung with it because the like we want to empower people to make change but we don't want to shame them to feeling like it's their fault that they're in the position that they're in and that's quite a difficult balance to um to strike i think um and and actually you know you you want to kind of be encouraging people to to make changes um and that's that's kind of the most the most important thing is is helping people to believe that they can change and that they do belong in this sphere and it not necessarily being about fitting into a specific mold or whatever or becoming a certain type of person it's just about you can do things to improve your life and I think that's what's really difficult is that we can't change people's social circumstances or their family circumstances or any of those other hugely complex things, particularly not overnight. Those are things that would require political change over probably decades. But there are things that everybody can do to improve their lives. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is a rabbit hole I'm not going to go down, but I don't hit... You've presented a really novel outlook on social media and the clearly massive positive impact it's had for you um with, with books like i don't know if you read cal newport's digital minimalism trying to yes pass out. yeah a really, i'm halfway really... through that but i keep getting distracted by instagram <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> Little joke. Yeah. um i actually think that is a really important book and a really yeah. good book and and i am i am almost finished with it actually but okay i'll be interested it has to hear... me, it has made me re- reappraise things oh. for anyone listening who, who doesn't know about that book um it is it is very interesting and it's it's very much about how our our phones are controlling us rather than us controlling our phones um and i think it's absolutely true and i've been quite lucky that my phone has controlled me to do quite positive things but I, but also i have done things like i've taken 30 day breaks from social media and stuff like that because you know and i went through a period of time which i do want to reinstitute actually where i had i i got myself a nokia 3310 and every Thursday, I would put my phone away and use my 3310 instead. But um, it's it's quite difficult to to maintain. And I think it's I think almost you know having the awareness of it is super important. Um, but there's different ways around it. And at the moment, I I get very good stuff out of social media, but I do have to I do have to be careful because I am you know I do push the boundaries. Fair enough. Seems to to your benefit though. But something that caught my ear that you were talking about when you were saying that it just seems like there is this very fine line between supporting people to make these individual changes because we can't we can't go in and kind of 
um, upgrade their or, or completely renovate and change their social circumstances. So throughout medical education, the, the communication sort of um, models that were taught are very empathy driven, very like motivational interviewing, eliciting mm-hmm. ideas from the patient and mm, taking a bit more of a backseat in terms of actively suggesting things. One thing I'd like to hear your take on is the first podcast I did with um, Arthur Borman was really interesting for um, many reasons. But one of them was the thing that really basically drove him to change completely was being just brutally called out by his yoga instructor, Dallas Page, who just, he said all the doctors he went to, they would kind of say, oh, you know, poor army veteran and give him empathy. And he just, he took it as an excuse in his words to kind of carry on this path because he thought, well, I'm sort of doomed to this anyway. But then when somebody else stepped in and said, actually, all of your behavior is completely counter to what you propose to be, which is a good husband and a good father, and just called him out brutally. And he said that flipped things. Have you had anything like that with patients or... How do you feel that sort of approach is? Yeah, so that's a super difficult one because, again, what we touched on earlier is that a lot of the evidence tells us that things like, you know, shaming activity, stigmatizing activity has the opposite effect on people. Um, I always bring this back to a, a story of of, of um, my high school time where I had a teacher who was incredibly harsh, used to always mark everybody down and it was it was infuriating like you would work really hard do this exam and you would just get a rubbish grade um and i remember him telling me that the reason that he did this was because he wanted everybody to do well so he thought if i keep marking people down they will eventually keep working harder and keep working harder and then when they do the exam they'll actually do really well um and that worked really well for me because I, I was continually motivated by just desperately trying to, to get a good grade. And I remember a friend of mine who was probably about the same academic ability as me, just continued to just get ground down by, by this and was just, and eventually just stopped putting in any effort. And then I remember, you know, when we finally did our, um, I can't actually remember if it was GCSEs or A-levels, but I think I got an A and he got a C, you know, because, and it was it was that was so sad to me because it was like we were at the same level and he's responded in the opposite way to exactly the same method. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing is, I think it's a hugely individual thing. And I think it de- depends on your level of motivation and on what motivates you, because I think if you can if you can push exactly the right buttons in exactly the combination with somebody, then, yeah, you're going to get a response like that. But you know, I, I, it would be interesting to see if you took all of the clients of that um, of that person and how many people he used that approach on and how many people ended up with the results yeah. that he ended up with and how many didn't. I, it would be interesting to see. I have no no idea what you know what the case would be. But I think some people do respond to to being told things harshly. And some people don't, but I think that also depends on on where they're where they are at that time. And if he had been told that a year earlier or a year later, would it have been different? Yeah, he didn't so know the diff- answer to that actually. Yeah, yeah, it's so difficult to know because. And I often had this like I joined an incredible gym a few years ago that um, really revolutionised everything. It really ramped everything up for me. And you know, we talked about how I'd got down to kind of eighty two kilos, and then I ended up getting down a lot further. 
and a lot of that was to do with with this gym that I had joined and this and it, it made the gym the gym became like this social hub around which we did everything you know we'd even go to the gym on a Saturday morning and do a class and then a bunch of us were going to get breakfast afterwards and and then we'd end up hanging out for the whole day and sometimes we'd even hang out at the gym it was so weird but like um but and I remember thinking at times I wish this had happened to me four years ago and then I thought wait if if this had happened to me four years ago I'd have gone this is really weird I don't like it you know and I, and I think I probably wouldn't have engaged with it as well. So I think, it, you know, the, the process of lifestyle change is so complex that it's impossible. You know, if you could bottle that, if you could bottle how to motivate people, yeah, you wouldn't be doing medicine. Yeah, I guess I guess it's it must be partly analogous to. I mean, yeah, as you mentioned, people, the reason people behave is just horrifically opaque um, and maybe biology like a biological mechanism is a lot more simple but even then you give a bunch of people a drug and you get non-responders and you just think how come so i suppose if you start throwing out harsh advice to people or or whatever you tell them some people Mm -hmm. i guess will be non-responders and that's that's tricky there was an interesting facebook live actually that i watched between um Jamie Alderton and Sophie Medlin, who's a, a dietitian, and it was really fascinating because she was talking about exactly this, and Jamie was telling the story about you know people who who somebody basically just kept calling him fat every day, and then he ended up losing weight, and it was a very interesting discussion about you know about about the difference between how to handle people and how to handle different people, and it was almost like you know we, we'd be quite shocked if people behaved like that in in our career because we are told to be you know, to be kind to people and to be supportive. But it's, it's just impossible to know without doing a massive clinical trial where you're just really mean to loads of people, which would be quite ethical, uh, unethical. Oh, I would and love quite, to see that, though. Difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just school very playground names. Well. Yeah, yeah, it could be. Okay. So a thing, I, a thing I wanted to get a little bit into because of your role as director, British Society Lifestyle Medicine, is hearing that term lifestyle medicine it's a very very broad it's a very very all-encompassing term because lifestyle is just everything and and i'm fully on board with everything that is going on there in terms of trying to put this at the forefront of our minds because of the impact it has on health outcomes etc but it's it it's distinctly different to for example if we look in other medical disciplines, anesthetics, respiratory medicine, which are so defined and they're very selective and you have to have a very specific number of skills to practice those specific things. So with lifestyle medicine, the feeling that I get is that the the really great thing about it is it massively opens up huge numbers of doors to loads of different people in different industries and is very accessible there's lot there's there's games that everyone can be involved in within that one field but on the flip side you might get some people coming in or other organizations which um perhaps wouldn't reflect the rigor for example of something like uh respiratory medicine or anesthetics or what have you um now I can't think of anything in like specifically but because of, because it's such a broad term as a director, is that a concern or do you see any of that happening? And obviously not 
not naming specific things or anything, but just <laughs> as as a as a field, let's say, across the world. Um, yes, it is a concern, and yes, I do see it happening. Okay. <laughs> That's the short answer. The long answer is is much more complicated, and it, it's a really difficult one. I, I think that, that the problem is that there is um, it's a very very new field. And that's the saddest thing about it is that lifestyle medicine isn't isn't a thing. Medicine is a thing and lifestyle is an aspect of it. Um, and lifestyle is important in in the, the majority of medical conditions that are out there. So that's why lifestyle medicine isn't a specialty. Lifestyle medicine is just an, a, a little branch of every type of medicine. So there's, you know, there's lifestyle aspects when it comes to respiratory. There's lifestyle aspects when it comes to anesthetics and everything. So we want, you know, we want every medic to be a lifestyle medic we want every medic to show show an interest in um in the lifestyle aspects of of the conditions that they're treating so you know to to give an example yes we want people to give appropriate medications when they are appropriate and by we i don't mean any sort of royal we at all i just mean generally uh, you know um but we also want them to focus on other things that people can do that will improve their symptoms um and it's not an it's not an either or it's not kind of saying oh let's treat everything with food you know it's 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 not that's not what it's about it's it's about just enhancing people's treatment by having a focus on the more holistical aspect you know we could have called it holistic medicine we could have called it anything really um but it's just about recognizing that people's lifestyles have a huge impact on their health um, and by lifestyle, you know, what's that? That means everything. It means what you put in your body, what you do with your body, um, how you spend your time, how you sleep, um, how stressed you are, all of those sorts of things. And there's there's so many different complex ways of managing those things. The difficulty is, I think that that when you know when anything is a bit of a buzzword it becomes popular and sometimes it, it can be a bit misunderstood and it can be misunderstood by people who can be using it for financial gain, but it can be misunderstood by people who it's targeted at. Um, you know, that there, there, there have been lots of misunderstandings about it. And I think the hardest thing about that is that because all of these things are so complex, it's very, very difficult to actually understand all of the different evidence behind them and all of, all of those sorts of things as well. So it's, it's always interesting to me when somebody says that they have an interest in lifestyle medicine and I go, Oh, great. That's awesome. And then, um, I, you, you know, you have this level of assumption where that they are talking about really sensible stuff. And then you go, Oh no, you're not talking about sensible stuff. You're talking about slightly fringe, slightly frightening stuff. And you're quoting evidence that doesn't really exist. Um, and it, it's really difficult to kind of manage that. And, and that's the difference is that you don't have that really in anesthetics because, you know, there's like if someone's an anesthetist, they've done the anesthetic exam. So they've sort of had to prove that they know what they're talking about with that sort of thing. Whereas with something like lifestyle medicine, it, it isn't a specialty um, and people can bring their own misconceptions to it if they want to. And people can tout themselves as, you know, there's people who call themselves like like lifestyle medicine practitioners or functional medicine practitioners and they're not they're not medically qualified in any way but they're putting medicine in their title and and that can be quite frightening as well um but yeah it it, it is a problem i think um it is something that everybody is invested in trying to 
improve and you know the more that you have good decent people being part of big organizations like the bslm and and you know you mentioned being director like there are lots of directors of the bslm i'm not i'm not like just to clarify in case anyone regional sorry yeah yeah i'm not the director Mm. i am one of the directors for the for my region geographically um so there are lots of lots of people involved um at high levels in that organization um but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's so difficult. And, uh, you know, I've been in situations both as part of the BSLM, but also in, in other kind of aspects of stuff where I've organized things like talks and conferences and things. And I've wanted to get somebody to talk on a certain subject. And actually, it's very difficult to know what they're going to say and how evidence-based they're going to be and all of those sorts of things until you actually see it happen and then sometimes you're like oh you know you're kind of watching it a little bit terrified um and actually i've been i have been personally very lucky there's i don't think there's anything that i've arranged that has that has gone that way i'm aware of but um yeah that's why i think it's just it's so important to get when we are doing these sorts of things it's important to get the people who are really qualified within their fields so you know, to me, it's really important that when we learn about nutrition, we don't learn about nutrition from a GP or, a, you know, a, a medically trained doctor, unless they are, they happen to have a very obvious um, level of expertise in nutrition. And sometimes being a doctor makes us think that we know everything about stuff. And sometimes we don't. And, and that's, that's so important because we have such a high level of trust and respect from people that if 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 we were to choose to go out and portray ourselves as an expert on a subject that we're not an expert on, there is a strong chance that a lot of people can get away with that. And that's that's quite a responsible position to be in. So that's why it's it's so important to try and, you know, to try and stay in our lanes, I suppose, a little bit in terms of what we actually are experts on. And I had um, an experience where I I was doing a or well I was part of a Q and A with my podcast team at, at the Body Power Expo, um, and someone is actually a good friend of mine um, asked the question. They said, like you you know you've obviously you've done your own lifestyle transformation, um, you've clearly made a big kind of you know this this kind of splash in talking about lots of stuff in the fitness industry and everything like that. You're a doctor. But do you really feel like you know enough about nutrition to be standing on that stage talking about nutrition? And um, and I was like, no, I don't. Of course I don't. That's why I'm not standing on this stage and talking about nutrition. I'm not talking about nutritional science. I'm not talking about, um, you know, the evidence for low-carb diets and all that kind of stuff. Because if we want to learn about those sorts of things, yeah, I can probably synopsize it. But then if somebody asks me to quote specific studies and things like that, I probably go, well, I don't really know. I know that I read, you know, this person and they quoted a load load of studies, but I probably haven't delved into all of that research. So that's why a person with a research research or a nutrition qualification would be the person to answer that question. But for me, I'm I my passion is about trying to get us to learn about these things as as best we can from the people who can teach us them the best Um, and to ask the right questions of the right people. Um, and not to try and answer them all ourselves because that's a trap that we've all fallen into in the past and it's something that I think as GPs we're all right at because we're quite accustomed to going actually do you know what this is a bit beyond me so I'm gonna get somebody else to do it but then you often get 
you often get a lot of medics who might be more reluctant to do that, I suppose. Yeah, I think part of that is correlated to feeling of um, either imposter syndrome or competency because sometimes I just feel like I need to give this person an answer. Like, oh, I'm just going to kind of gerrymander this diagnosis obviously i don't do that but i feel yeah. this urge to to say yeah. oh i think we it's this do. yeah it's awful we all do because you you feel incompetent if you can't answer a question right but i think i think getting getting comfortable with your own incompetence and your own limits is the most important thing for a successful practitioner to be able to do um, and and owning being wrong and owning not knowing the answer is intensely liberating. Like you know, once you actually get confident at what you don't know, is massively liberating. To because to be able to say to a patient, Do you know what, I don't know what this is, and not actually feel, oh God, I'm such a terrible, awful doctor that I don't know what's going on. You know, to be able to say to them, I don't know what this is, but let's try and find out, and to not feel that guilt is really important it's important to, to 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 your own well-being as a medical practitioner and it's important to your patients Safe. as well because you're not you're not you know just just trying to give them an answer which yeah. is something you shouldn't shouldn't be doing yeah i get it definitely so on that sort of note apart from i guess thinking about general practice uh, we can't cover all of medicine so we'll focus on general practice but Apart from more time, what would be, let's just say, one or two or just however you want to take it, something else that GPs, people working in general practice can do to better able, um, better able to affect change and support their patients with lifestyle change? I think just opening up the conversation sensibly and accepting that we don't need to be the ones to tell them how to do it um and i think that's that that ends up what a lot of people i think a lot of patients end up feeling a bit dismissed like oh you just need to lose weight you know that's not advice telling people that they need to lose weight is unlikely to be news to them um there are they're more likely to think they need to lose weight than you are to think they need to lose weight um but it's it's about trying to help them find out how to do that. And I think we are getting a lot more things like wellbeing services that we can refer to um, and, you know, offering those out to people and, and sort of trying to help people engage with those is, I think, really important because those are the people who are trained to try and help them in, in, in that sort of journey as well. Um, and just be, yeah, just being open to it, but also just trying not to be judgmental i think that's something that we don't always get right in the medical profession i think we can sometimes come across as a bit judgmental i agree i think the times that i have assumed something about a patient either their motivation or anything like that is when i've been absolutely stung because i've been yeah. completely wrong yeah and it's something i really need to be aware of um okay so starting to look towards um some quick fire quick fire ish questions if that's all right with you so the first i'm glad you said quick fire ish yeah i'm glad you caveat i'll give you that that margin to, can't be to too play fast. with right exactly you, you can't rush you. these things so first thing is is there one thing that you can think of that you started this year i can think of something that maybe you might say that you're really pleased about having started doing something that you've you've got value from doing like a new thing for you 
I think I've started I've started working harder on sleeping better. Ah. Um that I but I haven't really seen any value from it. <laughs> I just feel like I've just got less time to do stuff every day. Hopefully less dementia down the road and uh, yeah, all that exactly. other stuff. Yeah, I'm hoping that all all this stuff is true because then I'll I'll be I'll be smiling, but yeah. um yeah, and I I'm yeah, I I'm thinking of of different things to do from an exercise point of view at the moment, but I haven't they, those haven't really come to fruition yet. What were you thinking that I had done? So I thought maybe you've done it for longer than I thought, but swimming in the sea, early morning swims. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I haven't done it for longer than you thought. Yeah, that's been awesome. Great. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. I'm glad you know more about my life than I do. It's creepy Um, but true. Yeah. That's been amazing. Like sea dips has been really, really cool. There's something kind of like eerily magical about just being in the sea yeah. and watching the sunrise um, and being freezing cold yes yeah uh, i am a big fan of it as well but i think yeah. you have got more consistency and more uh you're more steel than me perhaps at the moment with it so all right and as a gp what i think we all have our things that we quite like to treat and see versus other things that make your heart sink a bit What's your favourite thing to come in the door where you think, oh, man, I love treating this? Is it Mental health. It really, mental health. Yeah. Yeah, mental health is um, – so I'm I'm mental health lead GP at my practice, and it's, I, I did a fair amount of mental health on my VTS rotation, and I just – I found it really interesting. And it was kind of – I didn't – I did contemplate doing psychiatry, but um, I think it's a very, very heavy profession. But, I, I yeah, I, I enjoy – I mean, to say I enjoy it, almost sounds wrong because I don't enjoy obviously people struggling with it but I enjoy being able to help with that because I think um there's I think especially now there there feels to be quite a lot of different things that we can do and a lot of different avenues we can explore um I, I feel like GPs several years ago definitely had a reputation for if you went to see your GP about feeling low you just they would just shove you on antidepressants and that would be it mm. um and I definitely don't think that that is the case um so you know we've got a lot of different avenues that we can explore now with patients and i think that 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 is great okay and how about um see it seems like i'm asking everyone this but i do quite like asking this question any books that you would recommend uh, any books that you've got particular value from um yeah so i i'm atrociously bad at reading which is a real shame because i think that reading is is really really valuable um but i have been getting into it a lot more recently and my favorite book so far of the kind of motivationally self-helpy sort of books has been um willpower doesn't work by benjamin hardy i don't know if you've it's excellent um and i'm not sure if i just picked it out at the exact time that i needed to read it um but it was it was perfect. Um, I really enjoyed um, Atomic Habits by James Clear. I think that's a really good base book. Um, I think also if you you know there's um, if if you want kind of a general overview of kind of mindset self helpy sort of stuff, my friend Jamie Alderton did a, a book called Mindset with Muscle, and that's kind of a really good kind of introduction to that sort of style of book. Um, what else there's oh yeah the mark manson books as well oh yeah sure yeah yeah Yeah, it's very good um and yeah there's there's been quite a few that i've that i've really enjoyed but those are probably the biggest ones that have 
stuck out for me at this point. Lovely. And the final question from this quickfire-ish round is, if I could teleport you back to, I think, medieval times with the witch burnings and everything, that sort of era, for a week. So it's it's a fair chunk of time. Mm-hmm. Um, you're allowed to bring one thing. Can literally be, oh, It can literally be anything that you like. Um, whatever technology or whatever you want to take with you for whatever reason. Um, can you think of something that you'd like to take? Um, probably, I would say maybe my car. Very good, yeah. Because that would contain accommodation. Um, it would contain like the radio. <laughs> I don't know if I'd be able to access the radio from medieval times. Um, and I could store on it lots of music as well. So it means I wouldn't have to partic- pick a particular album or anything yeah. like that. You'd freak people out though. You might, yeah. you'd yeah. run out of petrol is the only concern and they, no, I don't they think, think you're a witch. And I don't think I would in a week because I'd have, no, because I, I, you know, about 600 miles. Quite and a if good you, miles uh, to the gallon there. Uh, yeah, but also nobody else can go faster than a like a you know a horse's gallop. <laughs> it's not like I can't escape from people. So if people oh, right. try and burn me at the stake, just drive off, mate. Oh no, wait, they won't have roads. Well, and it's gonna yeah mud. There's no there's no real roads. Yeah, I didn't even think about no that. So either. No, see, it's quite a like if you break down, you can't call the AA. No, no, none of that. None of that at all. That's you could lock your it's... doors and just hope for the best, really. Maybe my house, then. Just Would take, it include take your contents? house. Just the house. Oh, the, what point is a house with no bed in it? Well, exactly. That's why I wouldn't take my house. Well, this is not a quick-fire question. <laughs> this is the kind of question that needs a lot of thought. <laughs> okay, well, Mike, where can people find you? They can find me on Instagram <laughs> and on all social medias. Um, at Dr. Mike the Second, which is like spelt in a ridiculous way, which D R M I K E T H E two N D. There we go. Okay, brilliant. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate and it. If anyone is listening and does have any questions about anything that I've said, genuinely, please feel free to ask. Um, don't just like go on social media and say how awful I was. Let me explain. Don't berate this man. And he is very responsive um, to his DMs. That sounds terrible. (laughs) Thanks very much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did recording it with Dr. Banner. As always, I'm really keen to hear any suggestions, comments, questions that you may have. My email address is julian at strongermedicine.com. And in the meantime, I'm wishing you a good week and looking forward to tuning in with you very soon for the next episode.